Welcome to Sustainability Bites in association with Nestle Professional, the podcast which unpicks the key sustainability issues affecting the hospitality and food service sector today. This episode focuses on the hot topic of waste. I'm Amy Fetzer, Head of Research and Analysis at Footprint Intelligence, and today I'm joined by experts from food manufacturing giant Nestle, food service and facilities management Goliath Sodexo, and the waste-focused climate action NGO RAP. But this is not just another podcast on waste. As the data indicates that waste makes up around 3% of hospitality and food service businesses' greenhouse gas emission footprints, we ask, is waste really a strategic priority? The spoiler is, yes, it is. But what we're going to unpick is why. And also, how can we overhaul our industry's existing piecemeal approach to tackling waste to drive transformational change? And we're going to challenge our panellists to paint a picture of a waste-free future that can be achieved using the technology available to us today. So without further ado, let me introduce our fabulous panel. Today, we've got Sokna Gay, Head of Packaging from Nestle UK and Ireland, Sophie Whitfield, Head of Corporate Responsibility Engagement at Exo, and Eleanor Morris, Sector Specialist from RAP. Now, um, when it comes to packaging, I mean, there's, there's lots of different types of waste, but we're going to talk a lot about uh, packaging and food uh, in particular. But of course, we will touch on other things, I'm sure. But when it comes to packaging, hospitality and food service gets through about 4.2 disposable cups, 3.2 billion fibre-based containers and 675 million boxes, trays and pots. Uh, when it comes to food, we know that a third of all food produced globally ends up as waste and that food waste accounts of about 8% of global emissions. And we're going to talk a bit more about some hospitality focused stats later. Alongside all of this, a recent report by Zero Waste Europe and Unomia found that current levels of resource use, and that's including plastics, showed that even when pushing recycling and decarbonisation to the utmost extreme, that is really incompatible with achieving um, the climate agenda. So, this report concluded that plastic use must be reduced by 75% by 2050 to meet the 1.5 degree Paris Agreement target. This implies we need to start designing and using things fundamentally differently. So I want to start with a real challenge for our panel. I want you to paint a picture of a waste-free future, which is based on the technology we have available today. So something that is actually achievable, that is possible, we just need to scale it. So um, I'm going to start with you, Sokna, so you can give us uh, your vision of a waste-free future. Thank you, Amy. Maybe just before jumping into that topic, I want to start reminding everybody the role of packaging, because in the end, the issue is not really packaging and plastic as a material, but the way society use it and the fact that we don't have proper infrastructure to deal with the end of life of plastic and packaging. So we at Nestle, for example, use a wide variety of packaging to deliver safe, um, fresh products to our customers and consumers. And packaging is really critical to ensure the optimal protection of our food and drink while preventing food waste, which has an even bigger impact than packaging itself. Um, that said, the report you mentioned from Zero Waste Europe and Unomia um, is highlighting an issue that we are all aware of. We know that packaging in the environment is an issue for people and the communities, for the planet, and for businesses like Nestle. So coming to the picture of a waste-free future and how that could look like, it is really a complex issue and we need a wide variety of 
uh, actions to tackle it. Um, there is no one silver bullet, but I would actually call it, I would see it as a funnel. Um, and that funnel would be focusing on less packaging, better packaging and better system. On the less packaging, it would be things like eliminating problematic and um, non-recyclable plastic, focusing on recycled content, really to keep the packaging in the loop. Um, also looking at reusable packaging to eliminate the need for disposable packaging to start with. On the better packaging, it is about redesigning packaging for recycling. Everything that can't be reduced or reused can be redesigned to ease the recycling. Um, so designing for recycling is key. But ultimately, we need also a better system, both in terms of well-functioning collection, sorting, and recycling schemes, and as well, driving new behaviors. Because in the end, if you and I are not putting the packaging in the right bins, it's just recyclable packaging still ending up in landfill. And all those things already exist. It's not new technologies. It is actually um, already being implemented. We just need to make sure that we accelerate further the pace and that we collaborate along the value chain to make it happen. And we have supportive policies as well. Um, and just one last point on that. I would like to encourage the audience to really, um, the listeners, to really read um, the latest report that the United Nations for Environment published last week called Turning Off the Tap, which actually is um, published ahead of um, the next round of the Global Plastic Treaty to End Plastic Pollution um, Negotiation. Um, and it is giving real solutions on how governments and businesses can put in place action plan to end plastic pollution by 2040. Thank you so much, Sokna. That's absolutely brilliant to have such a comprehensive overview. You've made it hard for our other panellists to follow, but I'm sure they will create um, a new uh, vision for us. So, uh, Sophie, would you like to tell us your vision of a waste-free future? Yes, of course. So I think for us and something that we're really trying to start pioneering and looking at is um the idea of a circular economy. And now it sounds quite simple, you know, the idea of it that whatever we're using, we're then putting it back into um back to use. So we're retaining all the energy, all the resources that have gone into creating those products. But in actuality it's a really challenging and complex um thing to achieve so we know that lots of businesses are starting to think about it starting to talk about it but realistically you know the the technology already exists we know how how we can do these things it's just the infrastructure around it and whether those connections and those partnerships are built to a point that we can actually achieve that circularity rather than a linear model so it's removing sort of that that process of going from um start of life creating the product putting all the energy and resources into it to that end of life and processing it as if it is a waste item rather than recreating it and giving it a new life. So technology will obviously play a massive, massive part of that. But what's more important to me and to us, you know, in thinking about the future is how we process it to then make an impact. So it's changing our behaviours around what we, how we think about waste, both from a consumer and a business level. So taking that very circular approach um, and, and sounds like you're also talking a lot about collaboration and communication to make sure everybody is working along that um, whole kind of waste management piece. 
Eleanor, tell us your view, um, which I'm sure will be informed by all your work at RAP. Yeah, I think, you know, collaboration is absolutely key. And I think, you know, a waste-free future is where we can value materials differently. So we're looking through a different lens. We're not just looking at it from a financial lens. We're really factoring in the sustainability angles, the not just the economic benefit, uh, the environmental benefit and the um, social side of those. And of course, that aligns with the environmental social governance piece, but also the net zero. And ultimately, that's going to come down to, so on materials, um, absolutely, it's all about using less, eliminating what we don't need, and actually waste not existing, because we have closed loop systems where you are turning glass bottles into glass bottles. That's that's ultimately what we want to get to. So that those valuable materials are recognised as valuable. And again, that collaboration across the chain to help understand how those unintended consequences can be avoided. You know, people want to make the right choice, but it's so complex at the moment. But by getting data, which again is super important with all of this, if we can get data and collectively understand and account consistently across whether the material, it's a material or whether it's food, then we can start to make decisions that are really impactful and avoid those unintended consequences and really start to drive and deliver change. And of course, education and understanding is also part of that. So that behaviour change needs to start as early as possible so that it becomes business as usual. Um, I know the report mentions that um, continuing as we are is not an option. Um, So what we need to do is make a a waste-free future the the business as usual of the future and that takes all of us to work together whoever we are wherever we are and understanding that circularity and how we can improve the material the recyclate that we're using but what responsibility and accountability we all have in part of that journey thank you so much eleanor i think you've raised a really interesting point about data there and one of the things i wanted to unpick is that stat that i gave at the beginning because there are some indications when people do footprinting, that waste is only a small proportion uh, when you do that footprint of hospitality and food services, greenhouse gas uh, emission impact. So when you look at zero carbon forums analysis, which was based on aggregate member data, industry from carbon industry data from carbon intelligence and CDP and carbon architecture, so quite you know robust and, and diverse sources there, found that kind of it accounted for about three percent of scope three for pubs and QSR. But it was even too small. Waste was too small to get its own category for restaurants, hotels and breweries. Now, what, you know, that's what the data therefore would seem to imply is actually waste isn't a hotspot. But um, but these bigger figures we are talking about imply that it very much is. So, Ellen, do you want to sort of maybe unpick what the challenges is with that data? Why aren't we getting... Uh, ways showing up in footprints as a big area of focus. It's a really interesting point. It does go back to how we're using that data and what data we're capturing. So a lot of the impact of waste is within the embodied uh, impact. So the scope three of that food waste, for example. So actually, for every kilo of food waste, there's 3.39 kilos of carbon equivalent. But the disposal element of that is only 0.12. Actually, the bulk of the carbon impact is from purchasing the food, cooking the food, serving the food, 
and then obviously it gets disposed. But it's it's about how we're accounting that data so that we can all understand and be informed that actually if you purchase less food and it's it's ending up in the bin, then obviously you're reducing the amount of scope three. So yeah, what's important is how we're accounting, you know, that data and that to make sure it's being recognised across that chain and how we're accounting it. So we don't want to double count data, but we do want to understand where we need to make decisions. So the food waste element needs to recognise the embodied carbon within that food that ends up being thrown away, particularly where it's food that could have been eaten. And if you are purchasing less food that gets thrown away, so in the UK from RAPS figures, 18% of the food that is purchased by the hospitality and food service sector ends up being thrown away. Actually, if you change that, not only there's profits, um, of course, um, there's social benefits, but the environmental, including carbon benefits of not purchasing that food only for it to end up being thrown away, um, start to become much higher. But it is about how we recognise that data and account for that data. And we're really um, at the early stages of that. And again, it comes down to this collaboration across the whole piece so that we're building that understanding uh, across the board, whether it's on GHG, um, water or food waste, all of those things need to be factored in consistently. So that's a really good point, because it's important to be guided by the data. And although the data seems to imply that waste isn't an issue, because that's just focusing on the disposal element, it's not looking at that those ingredients, that that packaging, that all those other elements of importance uh, within that scope three. So it's, I think it shows that you have to have a maturity of being able to understand what's going on. And actually, the data does say that waste is important, <laughs> but uh, but it's easy to to um, to be confused by it. Um, Sogno, it'd be really interesting to hear what you think from Nestle's perspective about why why do you think waste is important? You mentioned, Amy, at the beginning of this podcast that um, one third of the food produced is wasted. And actually, if uh, we look at that amount, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is estimating the carbon impact related to that between 8 to 10%. So it's a lot. And if we look at our Nestle impact as well, food waste represents quite a lot and we really need to tackle it. If we come to the packaging side, for the time being, the impact of packaging ending up in nature is not well accounted in methodologies such as life cycle assessment, for example. So we know that um, sometimes we compare different types of packaging using LCA, but we don't really have an impact assessment to properly take into account um, the, the, the packaging ending up in nature. So if we look at really the entire value chain, it is quite critical to focus on waste, both food waste and packaging waste as well. Um, and coming back to the food service and hospitality sector, um, the 2022 footprint sustainability index actually also shows that 28% of consumers um, choose said they choose um, the, a place to eat depending on whether that place is tackling waste. So it is also important for consumers. So taking the whole value chain and consumers' perspective as well um, show that tackling um, waste and resources efficiently is critical to reduce climate change, the impact on climate change, and to achieve net zero. And in the end, the less we waste, 
the less we have to produce. So coming back to what Elena was saying, it is actually absolutely critical to have a holistic view on it. Well, I think that consumer piece is interesting because actually there's another report uh, we did called Reduce, Re- Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, and they asked people how they felt about packaging and um, were they more or less concerned about packaging than this time last year. And 60% said they were the same, but 30%, 30% said they were more concerned. So again, things like the cost of living crisis, energy, People are still really concerned about these issues. And I think also as citizens, if you're working in an organization or if you're purchasing or something from an organization, you see a tremendous amount of waste. There's an element there, doesn't it, that it absolutely loses confidence in that business being a responsible business and actually achieving these other important, you know, net zero goals. So I think that's another key component, isn't it? Uh, Sophie, what about your, from your perspective, you know, why do you think waste is such a big priority? I mean, I would very much echo what Eleanor and Sokna have already said in terms of, you know, why it's important, the perspectives in terms of what the full scope of actually um, waste means, you know, it's so much more than maybe we account for at the moment in terms of data, but in order to achieve, um, you know net zero any net zero roadmap waste is a huge part of that piece and that is very much important for us so going back to fundamentally looking at that waste hierarchy prevention is number one on the waste hierarchy and it's the most important thing if we prevent you know we then we we are producing less and therefore we're going to be having less of an impact and I think as well, we we as businesses are making choices somewhat on behalf of the consumer. So we're choosing the packaging that's available to them and the options that they have available. So we also have a responsibility to make sure that that produce can then be taken um, at the end of life and dealt with properly. And sometimes if we aren't putting those those things in place or, or putting in the best product for them, then we're losing out on that education piece as well. And and again back to again what Sogna said earlier, um it's about not villainizing a certain um product in terms of what actually it could be the best product in that instance for that region. Um, So it's a really kind of complex piece, but it's really important that we try and cut through some of this in terms of our consumers to to not greenwash them and to also act responsibly and help them understand the true picture and perspective that, that we're looking at and what we're trying to tackle. Can we drill down to some specifics? Because obviously that point you make about consumers being confused, people working in hospitality and food service are still confused. It feels like there's so many pockets of great practice, of, of good initiatives happening, good, um, but the whole sort of overall picture still seems to be a bit muddled and we haven't had that transformational change yet to radically address the issue of waste. Yes, there's lots being done, but what? how can we really drive this action across the sector to massively reduce the waste, increase the recycling, increase reuse? Like, what is it? What are that's going to unlock it? Um, Sokna, do you want to start? Because I think, I mean, we've talked a bit about collaboration stuff, but is, is that like, what is, what is the blockage? How can we get things really going? Yeah, there have been, as you said, lots of good initiatives and a lot still underway. But some of these reports that we cited, like the United Nations ones or the Zero Waste Waste Europe and Unomia, are clearly highlighting that all these initiatives, businesses are having voluntary initiatives. They are really good. They will help to get there, but it's definitely not enough to um, really um, achieve a waste-free future. 
So for me, I really believe that supportive policies and regulations will be key as well to achieve this. We need actually um, regulations that will help businesses to work towards a circular economy and to level the playing field because it's always almost the same set of companies working on voluntary initiatives. But if we look at the impact at the end overall, it's still quite minimal compared to everything that is placed on the market. Would it be good to just do a quick overview of where all the policy is right now? I mean, it's changing day by day, I know, but just a quick overview and and sort of, you know, how those are going to help in terms of how they'll drive change, you know, the things that are in the pipeline, like the single-use plastics ban, DRSE, um, extended producer responsibility. Um, maybe just give us a, a, our readers a, a really quick overview of where we are and what changes we might see, you know, within a year from those things in the pipeline. So there is not only one policy that will help in the end. It needs to be a set of comprehensive policy um, instrument. Um, to tackle this issue. And extended producer responsibility, for example, is actually quite well known to work efficiently um, for everything, for all packaging that are not reusable or we cannot reduce. Having mechanism like extended producer responsibility can help to have efficient collection, sorting and recycling schemes when they are well-designed. And an example of a well-designed EPR scheme that we cite all the time is Belgium. Um, where actually more than 90% of packaging placed on the market is getting recycled. Um, In the UK, currently, our system is based on packaging recovery notes, which we know is based on offer and demand, um, and it's not really actually efficient to drive the right behavior and to drive the right infrastructure. In the country, it's still scattered. Um, The lack of consistent collection is also um, very difficult. Where I live, for example, um, the street that is just next door is in another council and they don't have the same recycling bins than we have. Where I live, I can put some of the flexible packaging, but um, the street next door cannot. So those type of things actually um, will be very difficult if it continues like (laughs) as is. Um, to to reach something that is meaningful and scalable. Um, So the comprehensive set of policy we need would include well-designed extended producer responsibility where producers are at the center of it because it's a producer responsibility to manage it efficiently and ensure that packaging is collected and effectively recycled. It would include mechanism like deposit return scheme, because that helps for drink containers, for PET bottles, to ensure PET bottle is going back to PET bottle instead of going into fibers or other applications, which ultimately will not be recycled. Um, Single-use plastic bans have a role to play in it as well, even though bans is never the best policy, but it will have a role to play for incentivizing reusable coffee cups, for example. Um, So it's really uh, a holistic set that we need. Um, And in the future, having a levy on virgin plastic might help as well. And that is something that is being discussed as part of this global plastic treaty um, with the United Nations. And we are really supportive of this plastic treaty and of legally binding treaty 
where all countries across the world can have sets of targets that we are working towards too. But I mean, one of the things that's interesting is you opened that with some of the great examples like Belgium, but we seem to, you know, we're still having such issues with, with DRS, with the deposit return scheme, which is very popular in, and successful in many other regions. I mean, Eleanor, I know you have some perspective on, on why why actually the delays, are, whilst frustrating, are, are might potentially be the be a, a good thing in the long run if it means that we get something better. Do you have um, some views on that? Well, I think it's, there is no doubt this is an incredibly complex issue and we are. it's really important to make sure that we get this right. And so pausing to ensure that we go ahead with the right policy instruments so that there are no, as, as we said before, no unintended consequences further down the line. So the policy instruments that are coming across the UK are being introduced at different timings and so forth and slightly different ways across the nations, but they are all heading for the same ambitions. And we can see the impact that that is having. So, for example, um, the plastics tax highlighting the important and need importance and need to include recycled content and encourage um the improvement of recycling uh, materials. And again, to Sogden's point, you know, that keeping that loop closed rather than an open loop where you're placing, um, you are reusing materials, but ultimately they're not staying within that that closed loop system, which is super important. And, you know, EPR, DRS, the consistency and collections piece is really important. And uh, in the the UK, it will be England, have got the DEFRA uh, resources and waste strategy from 2018, which comes up with a number of these policy ambitions. Consistency in collections is important because it's tackling households and businesses. So wherever you are, you will be recycling uh, the similar uh, items. So, you know, you will be having separate food waste collection, for example. So that, again, that that help, that understanding, addressing some of the confusion that, that Sokna highlighted it, it is is planned and and addressed within that um, policy area and and just going back to that data piece, digital tracking is coming in as well. So that will again help inform and and ease some of these data gaps that exist at the moment, and that's important for sort of decision making as well. So all of that data piece helps with eliminating that sort of greenwashing and those concerns that we have around that and really start to build the infrastructure to enable us to recycle as much as possible and improve the content the quality of recycled material is really important as well to to the the plants that do that so um yeah and ultimately again we we've all mentioned it but this is all about the waste hierarchy and elimination prevention is absolutely key, whether, whether it, whatever material or resource that is. And how, thank you so much, Eleanor. I think what's really interesting, Sophie, maybe you could give a perspective from a from an operator, because obviously you've been getting ready for, for legislation that you think is coming in here or coming in there, and then things keep on getting delayed or changed or pushed back. So how how are operators managing? And, you know, is it, is it is it slowing you down? Is it is it are you getting you know you you you're just trying to get ahead? Like how is it having an impact? And what can what needs to happen for operators to be able to do more now rather than constantly waiting for uh, the legislation to kind of catch up? 
Yes, I think for us, in order to remain competitive in the market, we need to be ahead of legislation. So we keep a view as to kind of what's coming up, what consultations are out there, make sure that we also um, have our voice within those so that we can influence and, um, you know, steer the marketplace where, from our perspective, in terms of actually operating a business. But some of the real challenges and complexities that um, Eleanor and Sokna have both mentioned are the fact that, different things are happening in different areas in quite a small country let's be honest so um you know we've got different time scales different container types um you've got different local collections that take different items and not only from a consumer perspective it's confusing but also from a business perspective how can you give a clear directive as to what people should be purchasing what they should be putting out for our customers and when we don't have that clear picture of what end of life actually looks like and if we're splitting things into these different regions it's making things really complex so from our perspective what what would really help is um some alignment there and almost one clear message as well to bring um it all together and that would be a clear message for both businesses and consumers as well Thank you very much, Sophie. And Sogna, I know you were talking earlier about there's some elements around um, the, you know, in Scotland, the delay with DRS has had some impacts because that's been supported very heavily by industry. Did you have some thoughts to share on that? Yeah, so um, Circularity Scotland was um, funded by industry in the end. And um, since the beginning, it has been up and running and um, um, really making sure that um, init- the DRS could go live as initially planned um, in August, um, initially this year. Um, so putting a lot of investment there to make it happen. Um, unfortunately, it has been delayed and we have to make sure that all that work and all that investment is not lost and can be really used to um, extend the learnings to the rest of the UK as well. But as Sophie was mentioning, the lack of consistency across the devolved nations actually is really challenging. And we need to make sure that um, even if there is a different system in Scotland that is going live before the rest of the UK, that it is interoperable with the rest of the UK. It will be really critical for businesses to ensure we still have a single market and everything that is sold can circulate across the four nations. Um, Otherwise, it would bring additional complexity in the system, which actually um, would not necessarily help in terms of efficiency um, and improving um, the recycling rates. So so the consistency for DRS as well across the four nations is key for us. But yeah, DRS is definitely um, one of um, the policy measures that can help um, on not only actually recycling, but also on reuse, because when DRS was introduced initially in the Nordic countries and in Germany, it was not for single-use packaging. It was actually to bring back reusable glass bottles or reusable plastic bottles um, to clean them and um, refill them. So we have also an opportunity in the UK when DRS will be implemented to think about the system, how can DRS used for reusable packaging as well and not only for single use. That's a really good point and as as it sort of feeds into that overall arching what would a vision of a waste-free future look like something that is 
using these systems that we're going to implement in a multitude of ways, not just um, not just to, to, to on signal use. Um, one of the other things that we quickly good to quickly touch upon is um, one of the challenges that we know operators have is that it's very hard to know which type of packaging to choose in certain scenarios because there aren't sort of readily available LCAs that compare the different types of plastics and bioplastics and compostables and paper and fiber and also a, a reusable item. Um, so, you know, what can we do to help the industry have um, those kind of decision trees, you know, some some kind of LCA information that's reliable, that can help people when they're trying to ascertain which is the right packaging product for the right scenario. Eleanor, do you want to have a point comment on that? I think the main point is, of course, that life cycle assessment is really important to get it right for your setting. So there will not be one size fits all, particularly for this sector, where there are so many variables on business models, on material types and so forth. Um, under the UK Plastics Pact, um, RAPS developed a number of decision-making tools about how to design for recyclability and so forth, which uh, businesses might might find helpful in terms of thinking about how to create uh, and utilise the right materials to ensure that they are able to be recycled, but also how you might specify them to, to increase recycle content and so forth. Um, so I think the LCA piece is really important and I think there's a there's an opportunity for us to share insights, learning, case studies about how people go about that. But with this caveat that they vary hugely, there, there will not be one magic LCA on a particular product that will work across the sector. So uh, that I would just uh, make sure that that's clear uh, in sort of developing those insights. But I think, again, as the data improves, we can perhaps look at what mechanisms can be shared for that and to help that consistency and understanding the impacts across the piece. And I think what's quite interesting is when I talk to lots of packaging producers or people working within the industry, a lot of people have LCAs, but they're not publicly available. They're something they will supply to potential clients who ask questions. So actually, maybe we should be encouraging those who have LCA materials to put them on their websites to make it easier. So when people are making that first decision of what type of disposable should I choose, they can actually more readily find information that starts them on that journey to then be able to get more detailed data for their particular setting or their specific product but they can at least get uh, a bit of a steer on what might be um you know how many times you have to reuse something before it breaks even with the you know another single-use product for example Um, if we move on to food waste um just have a little focus on that for a minute. Uh, it's really exciting to see that IKEA is absolutely smashing the UN's target to reduce food waste by 50% by 2030 by achieving a 54% reduction in its food waste uh, in 2023. So they've already done it. Um, and it was really interesting in our research for the 2023 Footprint Sustainability Index, which is coming out later this year, it's clear there's been a really clear, dramatic shift. Um, operators have finally understood the link between food waste and carbon. Maybe, Eleanor, can you give us a really quick overview of some of the, the key stats on food waste, so how much is costing uh, per year and halves and how much carbon it accounts for and what progress has been made to tackle it. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's, as you say, incredibly encouraging to see these kind of 
public announcements about progress and, and data again, proving what can be achievable to inspire others as well and reassure others that, that there is a huge amount of saving to be made. So in the UK, we estimate there's around 1.1 million tonnes of food waste within the hospitality and food service sector. That's costing about £3.2 billion. Pounds, but the, the, the focus that we do emphasise is that 75% of that could have been eaten. And again, it's about understanding how food is becoming waste in order to be able to tackle that um, and understanding that there is this carbon, embodied carbon impact within that. And of course, the other environmental impacts of the, the water taken to produce the food and, and so forth. Um, we also know that any reduction in reducing the amount of food that ends up in the bin has huge benefits to to cost to profit um and redistribution sophie was was um mentioning redistribution you know that's a, a big piece in terms of benefiting the community and the social aspect of uh, managing our food better so that it stays food and is eaten by humans ultimately uh, as, as much as possible where that's safe to do so. Uh, we know from work that RAP and WRI, so the World Resources Institute, have done that where you look at um, food waste prevention actions, there is a, a really impressive return on investment. So for every pound you spend, there's six or seven pounds returned on that. So it's really starting to ramp up. We're seeing ESG being a, a significant driver. So that is, is starting to lead to board members, exec members taking ownership and responsibility and accountability for this and having to talk about it and get data on it and realising actually getting data can be quite challenging. And But they're in a position to, to enable that to happen and start asking those questions and open up the debate rather than, you know, typically food waste in particular stays off the accounting systems and it's very hard to quantify and you need hearts and minds as part of that but that's really where we're starting to see things change. Thank you so much Eleanor and Sophie from an operator's perspective you know I know Sodexo has done loads in harnessing food saving to achieve carbon and cost reductions so can you tell us a bit about what Sodexo has achieved and um and how you've managed it. Yeah, of course. So net zero is really one of our key aims now and food waste for us makes up a massive part of that. So we know as a, a food business that globally reducing our food waste will have the biggest impact in terms of reducing our environmental impact as a business. Um, so food waste remains a real key strategic priority for us um, and it's been part of our global corporate responsibility roadmap for a number of years. So as of um, RAP's Food Waste Action Week in March this year, we announced that um, we had received great impact from our Waste Watch programme, which is the programme we've put directly into our kitchens um, to help our kitchen teams um, in actually actively reducing and preventing that food waste right at the top of that food waste hierarchy. So we have it now um, rolled out in the UK and Ireland at over 400 sites. We've prevented 236 tonnes of food waste, which is an equivalent to um, 437,745 meals, which is just incredible. And if you're struggling to kind of picture that in your mind, it's the equivalent weight of 39 orcas. So that can give you a good picture um, as to 
to what that weight actually kind of equates to. Um, and we've also recently um, launched our Appetite for Action campaign as well. So that's been running for a couple of years. And that's really for us to use our expertise and position in the market to influence um, industry and policy. So we were delighted to see that DEFRA was issuing the consultation on food waste for reporting for large businesses. And that's something that we've really um, supported because we know of the impact that that it can have. So food waste has been and, and remains to be a really important um, piece of our business. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thanks so much for giving us such a great overview of what's gone on at Sodexo. It sounds amazing. I know that Sodexo are also looking at ways to transform the business models to support food waste reduction. And I think you were one of the first in harnessing sustainable finance by tying bonds to food waste reduction, something that I think BNP Paravis have since followed uh, to do with to doing on the BNP Parabas has since followed doing bonds with uh, people like the supermarket chain Tesco. So, uh, do you want to talk us through this 1.3 billion revolving credit facility? Um, perhaps telling us uh, what that means in kind of layman's terms and how it's helping to to drive and support food waste reduction in the business. Yeah, I'll do my absolute best to try and um, simplify it here. So, in 2019, we renewed our revolving credit facility to include a pricing adjustment based on our performance. So that performance was directly linked to our 50% food waste reduction target. And we put it in place because we wanted to really, I guess, put our money where our mouth is. So demonstrate how important this target is to us um, on a global scale and also our accountability against achieving the aims. So obviously our um, pricing adjustments will depend on how well we can um show that we've we've reached that target and that we're looking at it so it's um it's a really kind of exciting piece that shows on a global scale just how much um food waste and the reduction of it means to us and in terms of so what what does that mean it means if you if you meet your target it, it basically you save money because your credit is cheaper so yeah, I'm not an expert in it myself. That's not um, the area that, that I work in in the business. But as far as I'm aware, it just means that the pricing adjustment um, would depend on our achievement of the target. So essentially, if we don't achieve the target, there's going to be some implications there. And if we do, then um, that's also going to then have a, a positive impact. Okay, that's brilliant. Thanks so much for explaining that because it's such a such a a great transformative way to look at business and to drive that change and to really embed it into the business by making it part of uh, the economic underpinning of, of how the business works. So thank you. And Sokna, do you want to talk a bit about the food waste reduction that you've managed in Nestle's operations and how you see Nestle's role in influencing operators and suppliers in the industry to tackle their own food waste? Acting on food waste is a key part of our commitment to halve greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and achieve net zero by 2050. Since 2016, we've reduced food waste in our operations by 45%. We've done this by adopting the three-step target, measure and act approach developed by RAP and IGD, as well as the UK measurements and reporting guidelines. One example of our waste not want not philosophy is our re reworking of KitKat. We take the trimmings from the wafers during the production, um, breakage, and any KitKats rejected by quality assurance 
reprocess them and put them back into the wafer feeling. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Eleanor, we've seen that the industry has really woken up to the fact that food waste reduction saves money and carbon. So how can we persuade those who are still reluctant to introduce this Target Measure Act approach to stop dithering and just take action? I think it's a really good point. Obviously, the sector has been going through an incredibly difficult and challenging time recently. But I think not knowing what is being wasted is a huge blind spot, particularly for hospitality businesses. And it's such an easy win. It is costing money, uh, probably more money than anyone thinks. And we need that data to see how much that is, but also empower those teams. So using Guardians of Grub, um, signing up to the UK Food Waste Reduction Roadmap, getting involved with Courtauld Commitment 2030. These are all ways that people can really start to look at that Target Measure Act approach and realise the savings that Sopner and Sophie have been talking about because it's 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 that visibility. Waste is, is a, has got a bit of a, a yuck factor to it, particularly food waste, and it becomes invisible. But actually, as soon as you empower people to see it and talk about it, then it can be incredibly valuable. And, you know, earlier we were talking about how much people want to take part and take action on climate change and, and walk the walk when it comes to sustainability. And this is a, a really easy win for businesses to take action like tomorrow, just start using the tools on Guardians of Grub and see how much you can save. And like you say, it's just simply splitting it into that plate prep spoilage and, and measuring it every day. And that tends to sort of inspire that spontaneous action to, to, to tackle those hotspots that have been identified. And I think what's also Really interesting in that space is um, how empowering that is for the people working there. And they often see a direct link that they can save uh, that food from being thrown away. um, And that that's actually them doing something really concrete and really specific that's helping things like food poverty and the food crisis, uh, the sort of wider food crisis and climate change. So, and as you say, each kilogram is one, 3.39 kilos of carbon. So every gram that's saved is, is very impactful. Um, we have a quick point that would be great to hear. Sophie, I know we talked earlier and you had some good points to make about learnings from consumer uh, or retail that could be applied to hospitality and food service. Did you, uh, did you want to share some insights there? And then we'll just uh, wrap up after that. Yeah, of course. So I think um, in terms of the hospitality industry, because of the type of food that that we create, there is some complexity around how we then process that when it becomes um, waste. So the retail seems to have really cracked um, food redistribution. And I think it's around the um, pieces around sort of allergen labelings in terms of the legislation around calories now um, and then also the, the just the type of products that it is that they're they're processing so I think the hospitality industry has a lot to learn from how retail have done it and then how we can take those learnings and actually um, apply them to the hospitality industry to get that food that that might otherwise be wasted because of the the, the legislation that there is in place and for good reason in terms of safety but how how can we um, work around some of those challenges and actually make redistribution fit for purpose for the hospitality industry as well? And then I also think there's some consumer-led um, initiatives out there. We've, as Eleanor said, we, we can see that people really care about this topic now and they really want to take action. And it's great that it's coming from um, you know that grassroots kind of swell of people that, that are wanting to do things and become food waste champions, food waste heroes. You know, there's loads of things happening across the country. Um, and then it's how those things 
link into our business again so the complexities around the allergen labeling around the legislation that's recently come in how can we actually get that food out in a safe way Um, and I think we have lots of learnings to take from other industries as well but um, I'm really pleased to say we're working towards it at the moment and we're working with great charity partners because it's all about reducing our impact in terms of the environment and carbon emissions but then also um, using what we can to to help support the communities where we live, where we work um, and where our people are as well. So in terms of a social impact piece as well, it has a massive opportunity there, but it's doing it in the right way that follows, um, you know, prevention at each level of the waste hierarchy in a really responsible way as well. And I think what's amazing as well is that obviously you want the redistribution at the end for those items that are appropriate, but often it's just doing the things like checking the portion sizes, you know, looking at what's on the plate, that what's becoming plate waste what are people leaving you know making sure that the the delivery schedules and the delivery volumes are the right for each site you know there's lots of things that are actually very simple aren't they good practice that save a lot of waste as well as all these very creative things or repurposing or redistributing so i'd love thank you so much for all your insights throughout as we've gone through if we could end with each panelist giving a different from each other so i shall make it challenging depending on what who says what but um if you could each give a different key waste reducing action that you would like uh, our audience members to implement today or to act upon today that would be great sokna if we could start from with you that'd be great Sure. Each one of us is a citizen and a consumer, and we can make choices and drive a system change. So my message would be refuse, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Eleanor? I think really the main action I would encourage people to do is just start getting data, get some facts. They're not going to be perfect, but try and get some facts, even if there's gaps, because you really need to to build your own picture and and take that level of responsibility and understand what's happening within your own operations. And ideally, if you're in a larger business, then help get that senior sponsor, that champion within the business to help you pave the way and uh, and get your teams on board. Thank you. And Sophie? So I think for me, it would be um, to start thinking about the circular economy, the closed loop systems, how we can actually start to crack some of these challenges and just look at how we work together across sector, across industry, as industries, um, you know, at all levels of that, so that we can actually start to think about the resources that we have that we're putting tremendous amount of energy into creating and how we can get the best value out of that and that's going to have a massive impact on the future um our future health in terms of the planet and our environment um and i just think it's this collaboration piece that that we really do need to um start looking at to to start breaking down some of those barriers That's absolutely fantastic, Sophie. I think that was what what I was going to end on, that this, what's come through loud and clear is that we need consistency. We need everyone to understand. We have got amazing um, solutions at our fingertips already to tackle the the waste that we we have in, in the hospitality and food service business. It is important. It can be accounted for in complicated ways, but it is we have uh, made the case that actually it is still very important to tackle this waste and we have the tools to do it. And getting uh, accurate data for your own business for what you're wasting and why and when 
and how that can be reduced is um, is utterly key. Thank you very much to all of my wonderful panellists for your time and insights today. You've been brilliant. So thank you again to Eleanor Morris from RAP, to Sophie Whitford from Sodexo, and to Sokia Gay from um, Nestle. You have been wonderful. We must also thank our our podcast sponsors, Nestle Professional. Without their support, we wouldn't be able to produce these podcasts and help to spread uh, good practice and hopefully uh, ideas and inspiration throughout the industry. So thank you very, very much to them as always. And uh, until next time, we look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.